Okay, can we have the PowerPoint, please? Um, when we started um, at about half past ten, it was a bit of a ghost ship in here. Uh, it felt a little bit more like a house group than a Sunday congregation. Um, and I wondered to myself, I thought, well, uh, it's the Jubilee weekend, and people might be in London getting wet, waiting for the barges to come past. Well, I know some people are. I thought, well, it's a long bank holiday weekend. People have gone to be with family. It's half term. People have gone to be with family as well. Um, I know a few people have gone to pick children up from university and all of that. And then I thought, but maybe it's also because people know what this morning's passage is. Um, We are going through the book of Acts, and we've got as far as Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, I don't know whether you've heard the story. Um, There's a book that was written a little while back about prophecy and encouraging us to understand that prophecy has been operating through every age of the church called Surprised by the Voice of God. And there's a story there of a Scottish covenanter by the name of Alexander Peden, who uh, was arrested and put in a Scottish castle, uh, uh, imprisoned there for having the audacity to say that Jesus was the head of the church and not the King of England. (laughs) Funny thing to mention on a bank holiday for Jubilee anyway, but there we go. Um, And uh, the story goes that they were sat down at the table in, in the castle, those who were imprisoned and a few servants and so on. And and this guy, Alexander Peden, was talking about the things of God. And everyone was listening and engaging in conversation, apart from one person who was just being really sarcastic. And the story goes that this guy paused, the, the, the Christian guy paused, and looked sadly at this sarcastic guy and said, observe the work of God upon a mocker. And he slumped under the table dead. And... Um, so, and I don't know whether the story is true or not, actually, but it, it's, I mean, Scottish covenanters were not known for exaggeration. <laughs> so as stories go, it may have some credibility to it. And I just wondered whether, as we're getting to the story of Ananias and Sapphira, some people just stayed away this morning out of a sort of sense of self-preservation. Because <laughs> um, if you don't know the story, it does involve a couple of people dying. Well, first of all, let's just recap where we've been so far. Because this morning... The passage that we get to applies, in a practical way, some of the things that we've been looking at already. So, um, a few weeks ago, we were looking at the story of Peter and John going to the temple and giving generously what they could. There was a crippled beggar there who said, you got any money? And they said, no, we haven't got any money, but what we have got, we'll give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he did. And they were enacting what Jesus had taught them when he said, freely you've received, freely give. And so they were exhibiting a lifestyle of generosity. In the next chapter, when this miracle is described, it's described as an act of kindness. So Peter and John, as leaders in the early church, were setting an example of generosity, giving away out of what they had, not holding on to it, and living with that sort of self-preservation, but giving it away. And then, I think it was last week, we were looking at the, the story of their explanation of what they'd done, and how the authorities wanted to close them down. The authorities said, we like what you've done, but please don't talk about your faith. And the apostles came back and said, look, we've got to talk about what we've seen. We can't talk about things we've not seen. That would be hypocritical and lacking integrity. And the the message last week was about speaking freely, speaking with integrity, 
where what we speak about is what we've seen, what we've seen is what others get from us. So honest talk. So this week's passage basically picks up on those twin themes of generosity and honesty. Generosity and honesty, but it applies those values, those virtues, in the context of sharing material things within the church community. So, learning to share in the church. Now, um, I, as I prepared this morning, actually I bumped into Keith just before, uh, in the office just before the service started this morning. He said, there's not much in this passage, is there? And I said, you know, you're, you're right. Uh, this is not a complicated passage of scripture. It's not going to take lots of long words or sort of, you know, lengthy explanations to get at what this passage teaches. It's a really simple message, but it's one of those ones that's really easy to understand, but applying it may be a little bit harder. So I think we should pray and ask that God would help us not just to understand. You know, the Word of God says, and James says about the Word of God, that we don't want to just look at it and go, oh yeah, that's right, isn't it? And walk away and do nothing, but we want to be changed by it. Otherwise, we're like people who forget who we are, which isn't what we want. So let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this scripture that you've given to us. Thank you for what we can learn from the example of the early church. And we pray, just as in our worship, we were offering ourselves to you and saying, Lord, have your way, do what you will in our lives. Lord, we continue that prayer. We continue in that attitude and ask that this morning we would be open to receive not only encouragement from you and uh, and a fresh infilling of your love, but also to receive your word landing in us. I pray that your word would land in each of our hearts and germinate there to bring change that causes us to be more like you. We pray that in your name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, uh, please do turn to Acts chapter 4. And uh, we're actually going to go from Acts chapter 4 and verse 32 through to chapter 5, verse 11, but we're going to read it in chunks. So here's the first couple of verses. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. So the apostles' preaching continued. That's what we've found in the last few chapters. There's a whole lot of preaching going on with the apostles. But the new thing is this, that the believers were all one in heart and mind, and they shared everything that they had. They shared everything. And sharing isn't natural, if I might say so. Um, I think this is... Oh, here we go. We'll come back to that in a second. This is what's more natural amongst human beings, that when we see other people who've got something bigger than us, uh, we want it. And when we've got something bigger and better than what others have, we just get on and enjoy it. I mean... The reason that we're a consumerist society is because consuming things is what comes naturally to us. But that's not what was going on in the early church. It says here that they shared. 
They shared everything. Now, let's be clear, this isn't a kind of communism. I don't know what your Marxist theory is like, if you know, but I mean, Marx said that in communism, when that utopia arrives, that people would give according to their ability and receive according to their needs. Uh, in a sort of, and that obviously requires some kind of centralised organisation. That's not what was going on here. What was going on in the early church was that people actually possessed things. It wasn't just in some communal, you know, common ownership. People really possessed things. They were their own, um, but they gave generously from what they had. In British history, in the English Civil War, uh, there was a group called the Levellers. There's a band called the Levellers as well, named after them. Um, They came to a sticky end uh, in Burford, where a few of them were killed. That's in the 17th century, obviously not the band. And uh, the levelling tendency, as it was, the levelling tendency said, we've got these nobles and rich people and then loads of poor people, and we should level it all up a bit. Actually, they said we should level it all together. There shouldn't be any people at the top and the bottom, but everybody should have an equal ownership. Again, that's not quite what is being talked about here. It's not about making it all equal. It's about individuals choosing to be generous. And actually, the individual choosing to be generous is a more demanding thing, or at least it can be a more demanding thing than that levelling, that communism Because it might be that you're this little girl and God says to you, just give your ice cream to your friend, which would leave you with nothing. And your friend rich. And sharing, as prompted by the Holy Spirit, can be like that. It's not about, you know that thing when you're a kid and there's a piece of cake and your parents say, you've got, uh, this is how I grew up, and I'm sure you did. It's me and my brother. One of you cuts it, the other one has first choice. Yeah? To make, there's, no, there's no more scrupulous division of a piece of cake than when two brothers have that task before them. It can take forever. And um, it's not like that. That's not generosity, is it? That's, that's not generosity. But generosity can mean that you actually end up with less than the people around you. And generosity is seen when we give away things that we've really cherished. If we give away stuff that doesn't mean much to us, well, that's still noble, isn't it? It's just not very noble. Um, when we give away things that, are re- that we really cherish and say, you know what, I think they could do with it more than me, And so, ah, there you go. When it's something that we really cherish, then then that is real generosity. And uh, it's a kind of organic generosity here, sharing your Weetos. It's obviously an American photo. Um, But, you know, when you've got something and just spontaneously giving it to others, I have to say, um, our our, our, um, middle daughter, Lois, I don't know quite how she learnt this lesson. She's great to give sweets to. Because if you give her, she's um, nearly six now, if you give her a bag of sweets, the first thing that she does is go round everybody present and give them all one. Like a kind of instinctive reaction. I don't know if she learned that. Some, I don't know whether that, it's the grace of God or something. 
Um, but it's brilliant to give her sweets because you always get some back. Unlike other children of ours who um, haven't learned that lesson yet. Um, a few weeks ago when Keith was preaching from the end of Acts chapter 2, where again there's a summary there of the kind of life that they had and how they shared things. And he was talking then about just the easy ways in which we can share things that we have with one another. About you know, having, uh, if you have a second car, or even if it's your only car for that matter, having it so that it's insured so that lots of people can drive it, so that if people are stuck practically at some point in life, um, they can just borrow it and take it away and make use of it, bring it back with a dental too. Uh, uh, that sort of thing. And just a, a generosity of heart. Um, you know, sometimes we might not, especially if you're a student, perhaps, maybe, and you don't have that much money, um, sometimes we haven't got a huge hoard of money to give away, a little bit like Peter and John in the previous chapter. They haven't got any money, but what have you got that you can give? One thing that we all have that we can give is our time. Um, there's a huge number of people in the world that just... Um, don't get don't get listened to enough. Aren't cared for enough. I mean, within the church, actually, that's what this passage is about. Particularly, it's within the church that believers shared everything with each other. We've got time that we can share with each other to care for each other. And um, it strikes me that one need that there is sometimes in the church is that there are people facing exams and they don't quite know um, how they're going to get on with them. And um, that's true of teenagers and students alike, people facing professional exams. There are others in the church that know the answers because they've been through that process. And actually, one of the things I love seeing, especially when I see it most years, some students offering tutoring to kids at school in their subject to make sure they do all right. That kind of stuff is great, isn't it? It's looking out and seeing that there's a need that could be met and saying, I will just give. It's an organic generosity. The vision is that no church member would be in need. Um, It's a huge privilege sometimes to travel to other nations that are not as affluent as ours. And uh, when I've done that, and I'm sure that others who have traveled to those nations as well will say the same thing, it's also profoundly humbling. Um, Again and again and again, what we find is that people who have very little materially are more generous. Um, I, was in, I was in Nepal, no it wasn't Nepal, it was West Bengal, North India, um, about 18 months ago. I went to speak at this little church and I put in some money to their offering, thinking that would be a blessing to them. I've, you know, it's, it's little to me, but it will pay their rent for a month or so, so that was great. After the meeting, they came back um, to me, and they basically they gave me the whole week's offering back, which was mostly my money, <laughs> as it happens. And what that told me was, I mean, that the money I'd given was probably four or five times the total of what they got most weeks. But they couldn't help but just be generous. I mean... And actually, for, that, for, for them to do anything else would have been to rob them of their, their dignity. They also then proceeded to feed me a meal for which I'm sure they'd killed one of their few chickens and all sat round in a group and watched me eat it. Because there was only, only enough for a nice meal for me. Uh, and I kept trying to say, no, no I, said, I said twice, come on, you have some. After the second time, I realised that was pretty, starting to become offensive. To them. There's a generosity 
that's often seen amongst those who have very little. And sometimes we can say to ourselves, if only I had more stuff, then I could be more generous. And I guess what I want to say is that that's not how it works. Um, Often as not, the more stuff we have, the more we think we need. I mean, what's the point of having an iPod if you haven't got money to spend on buying lots of tunes? And so life, you know, the more you have, the more you feel you need. Jesus spoke about this organic generosity, didn't he? In Matthew chapter 25, he told a parable about sheep and goats. And said to some, he told a parable about people being separated out. And saying, some people people being told, well done, come to heaven. And other people being told, you have failed. And you're going to suffer the consequences of it. And the particular thing that he told that parable about was that there were some people who had been organically generous to brothers and sisters in Christ. People were hungry, you fed them, naked, you clothed them, in prison, you visited them. Just kind of got on with being generous. Great. That's what my people should look like. But then the opposite was not being cruel, but just a closed, self-protective, well, just a lack of generosity, really. Just... I just didn't even see the needs around. And my prayer is very much that God would enable us to be a generous people. And the question that might help land this is, um, would you say that you're more of a generous steward or a greedy consumer? More of a steward, which speaks of generosity and handling it and giving it away. Are you more of a steward of the stuff that you have or more of a consumer gathering stuff to yourself? Is it, is it held with light, the light touch that it can be other people's if need be? Or is it once it comes to you, it's yours? You know, it's found its settled and final location in this world because it's now yours. Anyway, moving on. Uh, verse 34. It says there were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So what we've got here going on is not so much an organic generosity, more of an organized generosity. This is a distribution center. It's it's a place where you put a load of stuff and then it's sent out as needs be. And there's something like that going on here with stuff being put at the apostles' feet. So it's put in a central place. It's given to the apostles of the church. And then they're able to distribute it as is needed. Organic generosity is brilliant. Really, really good. Uh, But you know what? It's also undirected and people can be missed out. It says here that the way they avoided having anybody in need was actually through some measure of organisation. It was the organised generosity that meant there was no one needy among them. Yeah? Now, 
So there's two kinds of generosity here. There's an organic generosity and an organized one. There's a spontaneous generosity and a rather more strategic generosity. You've got one kind of giving where the individuals who do the giving are very much in control of where it goes and what it achieves. And you've got another kind of giving where the individuals relinquish control and give it to, in this case, the apostles of the church, give it to someone else to decide where things should go, trusting them that that will achieve the best outcome. Now, I think we all have a preference for you know, the spontaneous or the strategic. There's a great satisfaction in being able to give to something specific, knowing what will come of it. Um, there's also a satisfaction in knowing that you've given in such a way that it's more organised and it's definitely going to get to where it's most needed rather than just, you know, you might not be so sure if you just have had a simple inspiration and met a particular need. So some people, I'm sure, prefer the, you know, would love it all to be kind of organic and spontaneous and others would prefer it much more strategic and organised. What we have going on here is both and, Yeah. There's both kinds of generosity going on. Andy, can you weave your word in at this point? Is this on? Yeah. I was, as we were worshipping earlier, we sang a couple of songs uh, based around that, kind of, that picture in Revelation of the, the nations, hordes of people before the throne. Remember those couple of songs we sang earlier? And as we were singing that, I had one of those um, sort of little picture things and... Uh, you know that kind of modern approach to camera work sometimes when you're seeing a film and it kind of zooms in and out kind of a bit abruptly and it's probably quite trendy but I know someone in my family at least finds it quite, you know, it gets in the way of trying to see what's going on but I had this one of those kind of moments of seeing, it's kind of zooming in and out and zooming in was seeing the individuals before the throne and I saw various people who needed a touch from God and they were before the throne and then it zoomed out and there was this hordes and hordes of nations and I had just had this sense as we were worshipping of this that God wanted us to be a, a both and church that, uh, that we, we were intensely concerned for the individual but also could step back and see his big purposes and there's something about being an apostolic church that means we can step back and see and invest into God's big purposes in the nations right <laughs> Good. Okay. So just sticking with this organized generosity for a minute, obviously this kind of organized generosity is what lay at the base of mutual societies. They've pretty much all been demutualized now, haven't they? Um, but the idea was that people would put into a central pot in a community and when someone was in need that that need would be met. That's what national insurance is meant to be about. Um, we've made friends, well, got to know a little bit. Friends is probably to overstate it for the moment, but a, a, an organisation called Green Pastures recently, which is really exciting Christian venture, where someone had an idea and said, if I could set up a fund into which people would put their savings and promise a return, it's a really good return of 5% annually, which in the current climate is really, really good, um, and then have a big pot of money under my control and bought houses for churches that have a ministry to the homeless. So that those churches that have got a ministry going on, people volunteering their time, but don't have the financial capacity to get a house in which people could live, 
and get their life you know, back on the straight and narrow, we could solve that problem. And uh, they, this organisation, Green Pastures, has been going for a few years now. They own, do you know, Stuart, how many properties? It's about 500, I think. It's in the hundreds, yeah. And um, all of the, you know, the, the support, pastoral care and life transformation that's been released through doing that. As it turns out, most of the investors in the property, say, uh, in, the, in this property fund, say, keep your 5% don't need it. You know, it's a generous giving that works for everyone and does lots of people good. It's organised generosity. It's a really, really good thing. Uh, In this church, one thing that we do is maintain a, what we've called the poor fund. It's not very imaginative, is it? But it does what it says on the tin. And from time to time, we collect offerings and basically maintain a pot of money, which means that when people come to us with news of hardship, either within the church or outside of it, then we are not limited financially. We're able to give and to alleviate hardship as we need to. Obviously, uh, financial giving is not just about alleviating hardship. In this passage, that's the focus. But elsewhere in the New Testament, it also talks about giving resources in order to enable ministry, which I guess is what green pastors are doing. It's Yeah, it's meeting some real needs, but actually it's enabling ministry. And so we have all kinds of money that comes to us as a church and goes through our accounts, for example, to support people working overseas. And where individuals, so with that green pastures thing, mutual societies, I mentioned the poor fund, giving money to OCC that gets channeled overseas, those are all, again, really, really good things that are going on and are part of the background of, or some of those things part of the background of our life together. Of course, that's, those things, again, are all really, really good, but it's not quite what's going on in this passage. What went on here was that money was brought and given to the apostles without any strings attached as to where it was going to be used. It was simply put at their disposal. And I've been involved in church leadership for a while now. And uh, in all of that time, I would say that whatever leadership team I've been involved in, church leadership team, at every, at every single point, we have known of quality ministry that could be enabled, that could be begun if we had more money at our disposal. It's never been otherwise. Um, and we find ways of enabling ministry that don't depend on finances and run a tight ship and don't waste money. Uh, but there would be more going on for the sake of the kingdom if there was more money to spend on ministry. That's always been the case, and I don't see it changing anytime soon. It's just the financial reality. So I guess the question that I have here is, if on the one hand there's a question about are we consumers or stewards, the question I want to ask here is, do we feel any corporate financial responsibility towards the body of Christ? Do we feel a sense of actually we're part of this and together we can release things to happen through giving to a central pot? Do we feel a sense of financial responsibility together? Because they certainly did. I mean, selling homes 
and lands and so on shows that very, very clearly. It's also interesting to note that this is something going on in this passage, which, as I was preparing, I noted and thought, I wonder, I'm just going to have to log that away and think about it over a longer period of time, because it's really clear here that they publicly honour the people that give large amounts of money. So Joseph, Levite from Cyprus, gives some money, gets called a new name and memorialised in the Bible. Um, if you wander around certain places, um, like if you go into the, the um, under the Clarendon building, going into by the Bodleian Library, there's a, a stone plaque there which has got a list of the, the list of everyone who's in the court of benefactors of the university. Basically, if you give a large enough amount of money, they make everybody know about it by putting it on the wall there. And I, it's not really our practice. If anyone wants to come and, and sort of pursue an argument with me that. Um, they'll give some money as long as it gets made known. Um, hey, that's drifting into the next little bit. Because you know what happened was it didn't stop with Joseph being called Barnabas. There were a couple called Ananias and Sapphira. And they looked on and they saw how, you know, Barnabas, uh, Joseph gets a new name. Everyone loves him. Everyone knows about it. And they kind of want in on that. And they think we could give some money. And people could think we're good too. And they got in the Bible too. <laughs> Only for a less positive reason. The, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. A man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So let's be clear, the issue here in this little story, is not a lack of generosity, but lying. That's the issue. Said from Acts 3 and Acts 4, there were these twin virtues of generosity and honesty. The problem with Ananias and Sapphira was not their lack of generosity, it was their dishonesty. Because Peter says... Look, it was all yours before you sold it. 
It was all yours after you'd sold it. You were free to give any amount of it that you willed. And I mean, who knows? But maybe they had some debts to settle or they had to, they were selling a large bit of land in order to move into a smaller bit of one to live on. There's all kinds of reasons why they might not have given the whole lot and they were totally free not to do so. Even with only giving a part, they were showing a great generosity. But, you know, Joseph, who was called Barnabas, had just come and given the whole lot. And everyone had gone, God, that's good, isn't it? And they thought, well, we'll say that, we'll say that it's the whole lot as well. And then that'll be cool. And it didn't work out that way. It was lying that was the problem. Jesus said, let your yes be your yes, your no be your no. And obviously God doesn't want hypocrites who are motivated to, to keep up appearances. I was reminded of um, Hyacinth Bucket, Hyacinth Bouquet. And there, is this, there, there can be a motivation just to keep up appearances. And uh, my RE teacher at school, a wonderful Welsh woman called Dillis, had this wonderful phrase that she used to use when she talked about people who were trying to keep up appearances. She said, they're all fur coat and no knickers. <laughs> I am sure that it's not how God wants us to live life. (laughs) This passage raises a few questions about what God's like. Uh, The whole idea of God, in the New Testament no less, cursing people and them dying and so on, requires a little bit of explanation. Now, probably Ananias had a shock-induced heart attack or something like it. If you go back to the Old Testament and 1 Samuel chapter 25, there's a story of David and his fighting men approaching the land of a guy called Nabal and uh, Abigail, his wife, and Abigail, the guy, Nabal turns them away and Abigail says, oh, no, 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 we didn't mean to be mean. Please don't kill us all. And David says, okay, I won't. Next morning, Abigail goes to her husband and says, do you know what happened last night? really. And it says in 1 Samuel 25 uh, and verse, uh, somebody help me, 37, thank you. I was looking at this in my other Bible the other night. There we go. In the morning, Nabal was sober. His wife told him all these things. His heart failed him. And he became like a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So there's this shock in this like the shock of exposure of reality does sometimes lead people to have what maybe maybe heart failure is the right way to describe it. Medics might think of it differently, but there's no indication with Ananias that there's anything other than just a profound shock which does him in. Sapphira, Sapphira, however we say it, is a bit different because Ananias has already died. With her, Peter prophesies her death before it happens. It's not just that she is also equally shocked and maybe has the same sort of um, medical condition and also dies. But with her, Peter says, you are going to die. This is what's going to happen to you. He gave her room to repent but then she died. There's a couple of other stories in the Bible that this remind, might remind us of. Actually, a few chapters later, Paul, landing on the island of Cyprus, 
is confronted by a sorcerer by the name of Elimas, and it says, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimas and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that's right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind. And for a time, you'll be unable to see the light of the sun. And immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. So this is a New Testament kind of a thing that can happen, is that God can oppose people and can do things that read as something other than blessing, indeed, that read very much like a curse. we can maintain an image with one another and are probably quite motivated to do so, but we can't deceive God. We might succeed in deceiving each other, but we can't deceive God. What he wants is for each one of us to be authentic, that what we say on one day is the same as we say on the other day, because it's what we believe, because it's the reality of our lives. It's a little bit like you know, a stick of rock, a stick of Brighton rock. It's a patriotic stick of Brighton rock, celebrating the Jubilee weekend. And what you find is that wherever you cut a stick of rock along its length, you get the same thing. And that's a, one way of thinking about authenticity. What you see is what you get. There isn't anywhere where you're going to pick up something different because of actually having lied about things. God wants each one of us to be authentic and to tell the truth. So we thought, I thought it'd be really helpful this morning to try to land this practically. What I've got here is, um, I've got a list of what everybody's given in the last year, actually the last tax year, and I'm just going to start reading it out, and you can just say yes or no as to whether it's true. Do you think I'm joking? (laughs) Yeah, I I am. It's all right. (laughs) That feeling you had just there (laughs) is the price of... If you had a kind of, oh my goodness feeling, um, that might suggest that there's a little lack of authenticity in your life, maybe. can't even remember what you gave. It doesn't matter, Lulu. That's not what I'm driving at. It's all right. Relax. Relax. <laughs> Just what I'm trying to get at is, you know, this thing with Ananias and Sapphira, it's not about how much they gave. That's not the issue. We've already looked at the issue of generosity. God encourages generosity. Of course he does. But there's an issue of integrity here, of not giving over the impression that we're generous and all of that, whilst actually just being mean and stingy, yeah? If we, if we really don't believe that we should give any money to anything, then let's say so. Say, so I don't believe the church should have any money, I don't believe the poor should have any money, they should just work harder, you know, whatever. If you believe that, say it, don't live a lie. Do you, do my, yeah, it's making sense, isn't it? Um, Sapphira was said to be testing the spirit. Testing in the sense of seeing what she could get away with. Can we do this? Will the spirit let us do this? Answer, no. 
Um, and so the church feared God. So they should. Jesus said, I will show you whom you should fear. This is Jesus, meek and mild, friend of sinners. I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has power to throw you into hell. Words of Jesus. I tell you, fear him. And the fear of God is a tremendous help to us. The fear of God quickens our consciences and prompts us to listen to our conscience. Rather than just, oh yeah, whatever. Um, I haven't got much more to say, really. I think we need probably a little bit of quiet opportunity to reflect. I said it's not a complicated message. It's just, well, that's what the text says, isn't it? I don't think I've made anything up there. It's what the text says. Um, Easy to understand, maybe a little bit harder to work out. So it'd just be good to have a minute or two to uh, reflect on just allowing what I've said to settle a little bit and say, God, is there anything you want to say to me out of this? He may want to prompt you to be more generous, either spontaneously or strategically. Uh, He may want to prompt you to bring something to light by way of honesty. I don't know. Um, He cares about both. He may say both. So let's be quiet. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its simplicity. And I just ask that in all that I've said, that you would now come and just sift that for everyone. If there's anything that's just me, Lord, forgive me. And may it not, may my thoughts not be sown as seeds into anyone's uh, heart or life. That just get washed away, I pray. Help with that. Anything that's your word, Lord, help us receive it. Help us to take it on board. Understand what it is you're saying to us. Lord, as we've read your word and there's revelation in it, help us now to see the application to our individual lives as we wait quietly before you. Amen. So the vision is a people amongst whom there is no one needy. That's the vision. And that kind of people are not only hugely satisfied and joyful, but also very, very attractive for others to join in with and be embraced into that generous community. Um, I don't want anybody to feel under any kind of pressure you know, the scripture says that God loves a cheerful giver, not grumpy ones, dutiful ones, feel they have to. But um, So, Lord God, would you just bring good cheer amongst us, I pray? Would you cause us to be cheerful, joyful, uh, satisfied givers who love being part of a community where no one's needy, whether that need is financial or just the need for friendship? or maybe the need for some practical help. Lord, in all of these things, would we look like the kind of people you want us to be? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.